Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks. We have with us a very special guest, the one and only Cynthia Chung. Cynthia is the one half of the dynamic duo. You can find her over at the Rising Tide Foundation. She's the president over there, as well as the um, CanadianPatriot.org, uh, as well as her blog spot. Make sure you guys, not her blog spot, her, her Substack. Make sure you go over there, subscribe to her Substack. It is very vital that you do. And uh, for those of you don't, that don't know, she is the better half of uh, Matthew Errett. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cynthia, thank you so much for being on with us. Lots of things going on. Where do you want to start? Um, well, I, I was told that you guys uh, thought that my article on the special relationship, yeah, how yes. the British reconquered the United States and established the Anglo-American Empire was a topic of interest. So we can we can get into that. Absolutely. You know, this is vital. And I think a lot of people don't understand. They, you know, they think that the British Empire died. It's dead. That the interests no longer pertain to the modern world. And your article right here completely cracks open the militaristic empire that went from being a military empire to a financial empire to a covert empire to where we are today. So this is a great jump off point, folks, for you to listen in and to key up exactly what what Cynthia is talking about. So go ahead, Cynthia. Yeah, well. I think that it's it's really unfortunate what has happened to uh, patriotic Americans today where they have been really robbed of um, a really important piece of their history um, that situates themselves in an, an international context where they actually played a very positive role <laughs> internationally. Yeah. Um, whereas today, it's really being, uh, it's it, there's an attempt to uh, erase the better uh, parts of American history. It's not to say that there weren't major issues and, and so forth. And that's part of what uh, Matt Errett's book, The Clash of the Two Americas, goes over, that there were all, always two Americas that were combating each other. Yeah. And essentially, you know, when the American Revolution was won, which is is recognized as the first successful uh, war against imperialism, that, that won on that kind of global level, um, that the, the United States never fully won that war because there was uh, still an, inter, uh, an internal battle that the United States had to fight, um, which there was always this, um, you know, kind of uh, two economic systems, one that was more based on um, industry and for uh you know, just tool-based industry uh, that wasn't uh, based off of slavery and this sort of thing. It was based off of the creativity of the individual, that the wealth was really coming from the individual um, versus uh, the system of empire that Britain at that point had inherited. There were other, you know, France, you know, uh, and the Netherlands and so forth. They were all, uh, you know, participants of this, but it was really Britain that had inherited the ancient system of empire that you can say it started before Rome, but we can say Rome to Venice, uh, to to Amsterdam, to to Britain um, is is what had occurred. And um, the Civil War in the United States was was very, um, I think, you know, that's that's the most clear example that we can have, where you had this battle of the uh, these two forms of economic system. And um, what I like about this paper is that there are so many quotes uh, from people 
to really um, make it clear that this isn't just an interpretation of history, but when you actually read the words of uh, some very major players um, on the global stage during this, this time, it und undoubtedly was this recognition that there were two economic systems that were at war here. So um, I want to share one during the American Civil War, right? You had uh, the Confederate South that was obviously pro-slavery uh, versus the, the, the North, the Union, that was much more based on industry. And, you know, Frederick Douglass, for people who don't know who he is, he is a he was a he was born a slave uh, during the right before the Civil War period. He was able to escape to the north. He ends up becoming, um, amongst many other things, an advisor to to Lincoln. And he writes in his autobiography one of the things he was struck by the most when he went to the north was how much more wealth there was in general, not just by you know um, what you would think is the upper you know, middle class or, or the upper class, but even the laborers were having a better standard of living in the North compared to the South, whereas the South, the masters actually had a lower standard of living. They had a, a lower education. Um, they had lower quality of, of everything. And it goes to show how that kind of slave system doesn't really ultimately benefit anyone in that system. Um, and so that was very striking coming from Frederick Douglass, especially. But um, during the Civil War, uh, a lot of people probably don't know that Russia actually intervened, not directly, but Britain and France had basically um, told Russia that it was their intention to militarily back the Confederates during the Civil War. And Tsar Alexander II actually said in an interview with uh, Wharton Barker, Afterwards, in 1879, in the, the Independent, um, he, he responded to, to this saying um, that this would be a casus belli for Russia. Mm. He actually sent uh, his enemies to both the east, eastern and western side coastlines of the United States for seven months during a period that was thought to be the most um, likely for a, a British and French um, intervention on uh, behalf of the, uh, of the South. And he said the reason why he did this quote was not uh, because of, uh, you know, I did this uh, for the love of my own dear Russia, mm. for love of the American Republic. I acted thus because I understood that Russia would have a more serious task to perform if the American Republic with advanced industrial development were broken up and Great Britain should be left in control of most branches of modern uh, industrial development. So it was very clear that there was this system called the American system. It was it was known um, by that name that was uh, recognized as the, the 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 most powerful tool against the, the economic system of imperialism, which at that time was enslaving the world through opium and also its uh, cotton trade, which the South was uh, directly implicated in. And I just want to share another quote, and then uh, I don't know if you want to share your thoughts on this afterwards. Uh, during the Civil War, you had the British uh, Lord Robert Cecil, the Marquess of Salisbury, a very prominent uh, position in Britain. He was also the Prime Minister several times of Britain. He says during the American Civil War, the northern states of America never can be sure friends because we are rivals, rivals mm. politically, rivals commercially. 
With the southern states, the case is entirely reversed. The population is an agricultural culture. They furnish the raw material of our industry. So raw producers, right, raw resource producers, they consume the products which we manufacture from it. With them, every interest must lead us to cultivate friendly relations. And when the war began, they at once recurred to England as their natural ally. So again, very clear evidence here that there was this attempt to have that kind of economic system take over the United States. And there was a lot of, we don't have time to go over it here, but there was a lot of um, play going on. Uh, some people even kind of masking themselves as being like, anti-slavery, but ultimately for the cause of breaking up the country. So they didn't really, some people pretended <clears throat> to care about the slavery topic, but yeah. it was all about breaking up the United States um, in two during that time. And Lincoln had done a really fantastic job of uh, keeping the country together. Yeah, it's remarkable because the, the Brits... Even though at that time, during the time of the Civil War, they themselves abolished slavery, quote unquote, in their mainland, they were still profiteering off the slave trade in a major, major way. And that's what's remarkable about it. It's like on the surface, they could they, they could claim cleanliness and, you know, we're innocent of this. But here they are still being the main profit takers of this whole entire human atrocity. Yeah. And um, another big piece of uh, history that people aren't told is that the, the whole problem with how slavery was introduced into the United States was because of Britain through mainly the Royal African Company, um, where they were uh, dumping uh, these uh, slaves into the United States and uh, at a point where the majority of the colonies, um, if not all of them at one point, were voting against having this. Mm -hmm. So it was being implemented against the will. And at that time, right, the these colonies didn't have independence. They they had to there was a there was a, a lot of difficulty even in you know forming a currency where they could all trade together uh with 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 themselves. And so they were not really uh strong enough to to resist that sort of thing. But that's what caused massive, massive problems for the United States and was constantly used to undermine um a whole bunch of things that that were going on. And uh, you know, even though Britain outlawed slavery the exploitation of their workers in the cotton industry within Britain was horrific. And you had like children as well working in these, these cotton industries where the cotton, the fluff would actually fill the air to such like was so dense. You were, you would breathe it into your lungs and it would just collect in your lungs until a lot of these people would just slowly suffocate you know, um, at a young age wow. um, by just breathing in this cotton that was like, you know, in the air all of the time. And, you know, children were being put into that environment too at a young age. So a lot of people were, were dying pretty young. So that, I mean, that's not really, you know, you can say you outlawed slavery, but I mean, what, yeah. you know, it doesn't really make a, a difference if these people have no choice but to work in those kinds of conditions anyway. Um, and, you know, what they did to India in terms sure. of destroying the textiles. And then they uh, they destroyed India's economy, made them raw producers of opium. And then they forced the opium on China, to which you had the two opium wars, wars. with China, because 
the British East India Company was enforcing free trade, that Britain alone could have protectionist uh, orientation, but everyone else had to do Britain's free trade where it decided, you know, what it would give you. And of course, um, you know, very conveniently, Britain found, oh, there's a demand for opium in China, you know, after they had basically flooded you know, China with this product to encourage addiction. And then they fought two wars for to enforce their right, you know, to trade uh, this opium into into China, which was clear to it was really to undermine China from within, because they had already seen at a very early stage that China was going to be a problem for uh, for the British Empire. Um, so anyway, that that being said, the American system was actually super popular uh, during this time. It wasn't just Tsar Alexander II who was a who who realized the importance of this, but you had it also in Germany, Japan, uh, and China. So that's very interesting, right? Russia, interesting. Germany, Japan, China, and uh, we'll keep that in mind. But uh, you see this with Otto von Bismarck. He he clearly uh, was a promoter as well of the system. And uh, Friedrich List, who's a German economist uh, who created the Zollverein, um, which is very much modeled off of the Hamiltonian system as well, what uh, Hamilton was able to do for the 13 colonies. Germany also had a very similar situation at the time. And uh, List made it very clear that he was influenced by Hamilton's approach to, to economics. Um, and then you had, you know, the Meiji Restoration that industrialized Japan. You had the Lincoln Carey Philadelphia industrialists who were uh, doing projects in China, economic uh, projects, and uh, also in, in Russia. And uh, you have uh, a great quote from Sun Yat-sen, um, which if you want to read all of these quotes, you know, just refer to the article because we won't have time to go through them. But Sun Yat-sen wrote a book called The Three Principles of the People. Yeah. He was very clearly influenced by Lincoln and Henry C. Carey's approach to uplifting the nation through economic development. Um, and Friedrich List as well in his uh, The National System of Political Economy, very clearly modeled off of the American system of economics. And, um, you know, you can ask, since you have the screen up right there, you can just scroll down a little bit and just show a few of the people who were assassinated because you know, the, the question is, well, what happened? Why did this kind of, you know, uh, vision that was clearly um, gaining a lot of momentum, it was was very strong, what happened to, to uh, subvert that? And if you look, these are just some of the names of the people who were assassinated, including President Lincoln, Tsar Alexander II, President Garfield, Otto von Bismarck was ousted. President of France, Sadi Carnot, was assassinated. Tsar Alexander III was likely poisoned. President McKinley assassinated. You have several Russian, very important Russian players who were assassinated. Tsar Nicholas II and Sun Yat-sen, the the president of the first president of the of China's Republic, was also ousted by British pressure. Um, so that gives you a bit of an idea, but. It wasn't enough, actually, to um, to prevent that kind of system from developing. And again, like, you know, the Americans were having their own people going into a lot of these places like Russia, China and Japan to oh, yeah. help with these economic projects. So it was a very <clears throat> hands on approach right. that was happening. 
But um, this wasn't all of these assassinations, as tragic as they are, was not going to be able to stop that momentum. And that's why I believe the two world wars were orchestrated in order to prevent this kind of uh, global cooperation from occurring. And it's been rather successful at splitting up the world into uh, factions so that now Germany and Japan would become, you know, the enemies by the end of uh, World War II. They had lost pretty much all their sovereignty up until today in the post-World War II world. They don't really get to decide what their country does ultimately in terms of big decisions. And um, China and Russia were going to be the targets um, with the announcement of Churchill's Iron Curtain. So we were, the United States was forbidden from being friends with any of these countries. And it's clear why they were forbidden to be friends. And um, even though these countries had, you, you know, certain things that occurred, like obviously, you know, the, the fascism, the rise of fascism, we need to remind ourselves that that was a problem that was across the board. Britain also had a lot of supporters for fascism. The United States had a lot of support for fascism and, you know, eugenics as well. And so it wasn't just, uh, you know, Germany or Japan or even, you know, France that had um, that kind of internal problem that we should just judge them differently from ourselves because the reality of the situation was that uh, a lot of important people within Britain and uh, the United States were thinking that Hitler was going to be successful. He was actually surprised that Hitler wasn't successful. And there is a lot of evidence now showing that the British uh, Bank of England um, and the uh, Bank of International Settlements and and, uh, also uh, Prescott Bush were all involved in giving Hitler money. there's a Alex Craner did a really good class actually for the Rising Tide call, um, on the Munich betrayal, mm. uh, how the Czech army uh, was basically um, given to Hitler because of direct British intervention and manipulation of the situation, wow. which Germany never would have been able to win World War II without that um, happening because the Czech army was the, mo- the strongest, most powerful army in Europe. And that was all because of Britain's intervention. Wow. And then they also took, uh, I forgot the exact number, but they gave millions of dollars from the Czech bank <laughs> to Hitler as well. Um, and so that was like a very clear, um, you know, uh, kind of cutting the legs from underneath the, 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 uh, the Czech um, the well, Czechoslovakia, and um, it was shown that at the time France and uh, Russia they were all willing to um, basically, uh, you know, resist and oppose Germany at that time, and it, the war would have been won much more quickly um, without that British intervention. So very clear that Britain promoted that war. They wanted that war to at least be extended. They definitely wanted uh, Russia to be crippled. Um, as a result of uh, World War II as well. You know, there's a great quote here that you have from Sun Yat-sen uh, in your article, and I think it's very important that people listen to this. Okay, the, it, 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 when you start understanding what was happening throughout history, this fight for the open American system, which is so vital, so integral, at a time where people thought, you know, we're used to having quote-unquote income tax, right? We're People are wondering, well, how do we pay for this, all the stuff, all this industrial production? How do we do it uh, when there was no IRS back then? Well, 
that's part of this entire American system of, 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 of a protectionist economy with tariffs, which fair trade, not free trade, but fair trade. And here's what Sun Yat-sen said in Cynthia's article. He said, the world has greatly benefited by the development of America as an industrial and commercial nation. So a developed China with her 400 millions of, pe- of population will be another new world in the economic sense. The nations which will take part in this development will reap immense advantages. Furthermore, international cooperation of this kind cannot but help to strengthen the brotherhood of men. And also, here's another great quote by Otto von Bismarck. The success of the United States in the material development is the most illustrious of modern time. The American nation has not only successfully borne and suppressed the most gigantic expensive war of all history, but immediately afterward disbanded its army, found employment for all its soldiers and Marines, paid off most of its debt, given labor and home to all the unemployed in Europe as fast as they could arrive within its territory, and still, by a system of taxation so indirect as not to be perceived, much less felt, because of its deliberate judgment that the prosperity of America is mainly due to its protective laws. I urge that Germany has now reached that point where it is necessary to imitate the tariff system of the United States. It This is like <laughs> blasphemy in the ears of the city of London. Blasphemy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they were really freaking out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Henry C. Carey, too, in his Harmony of Interests, he, again, also makes it very clear that this there was this idea of the two economic systems. And one is the British system. Again, not to say the British people or anything are involved in this or that uh, British politics is all bad because there's a lot of uh, really uh, wonderful opposition to this that has occurred in Britain, but it's the British Empire, right? It's the ideology, it's the financial structure of uh, empire that uh, Henry C. Carey is talking about here in terms of that in um, in opposition to this uh, concept of the American system, which again was like, this was what was discovered by the United States. It is a universal system, as we see all these other countries wanted to also adopt it because it was the superior system to uplift your people. No matter uh, what country you are, you you would want to adopt that. And, you know, China to this day, Sun Yat-sen is, uh, is still, you know, regarded with a lot of respect. And, you know, what China is doing um, as their economic approach is, is also very much overlapping with this philosophy. Um, it's not just, you know, this kind of scary idea of communism or, or whatnot. And you can you can just look at the kind of the I have a part two follow up to this paper, actually, that goes over some of uh, China's uh, role in Africa, because, oh, you know, they're huge. heavily criticized about that. But when you actually look at it and you see how these graphs are being man- manipulated a lot of the times, too, you're not actually um, having the names of a lot of these predatory things. They're they're often being put under these general labels and like BlackRock and things like this are often sure. not labeled by name in these graphs. But, you know, for instance, even the Sri Lankan uh, crisis that's going on, yep. um, they were blaming China for that. China owned 10 percent 
of that debt, which is not even qualitatively the same in its relation. Yeah, it was like less than 10%. It was like 9.8 or something like that. It was less than that. You know, it was unbelievable. And it was all BlackRock ESG nonsense. Exactly. Exactly. Which even like mainstream, uh, you know, newslets had to acknowledge was was the case. Nikkei Asia even acknowledged like BlackRock was a, a major player. JP Morgan, HSBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, HSBC is the opium bank for people who don't know. It's not actually a Chinese bank. It's a British bank based right. in the city of London that uh, was uh, created during the opium uh, when they won the opium war to tr- continue to trade opium within China against its will. That bank still exists in China. And that was actually the, the HSBC played a big role in Ming Wanzhou also getting arrested in uh, in Canada, which uh, I have an article that that went over that. So and, and you know, recently they've been caught still uh, trading in dope. So <laughs> it's not something from the past like they still o- old do habits dry, die hard, Cynthia, old habits That's- die hard. <laughs> <laughs> So and it just goes to show for people, right, that think that China just has like everything under control because they're such a totalitarian state and everything. And you see like that these kinds of entities exist still in China, which from the colonial past, like they're they have they're still trying to recover from the colonialism of yeah. uh, of Britain. Um. So, yeah, that that's like a very beautiful story. So. Now we're into this uh, question of like, well, so how did Britain um, basically infiltrate the United States and turn it into what it was, what mm-hmm. it is today? And um, so, yeah, Churchill, he announces the the Iron Curtain. And uh, I have some very interesting Bertrand Russell quotes as well um, that I suggest people read um, within the, the article. You know, for people who like Bertrand Russell and think he's such a pacifist and all of this, he always made it very clear that he was for the League of Nations, which is uh, which is an awful idea. Uh, very different from Roosevelt's idea, uh, by the way, of like the United Nations. Um but he was calling for um, in his uh, the bomb and civilization, which was released in August 1946. Um, you know, just a, a little <clears throat> or around a year after the bombs were were dropped on uh, Japan, he's calling for uh, the United States to become the imperial world power, and that they will the new League of Nations will be formed under American leadership. That Amer- he wants America to basically be in charge of uh, the military, the world military, and that no other country should be allowed to own the bombs, but the United States. Hmm. That's the kind of thing that Bertrand Russell's pushing, who's, you know, a member of the Fabian Society, amongst many other things. He's a British grand strategist. Why is he asking for the United States to be in that position, right? That's something people should be asking themselves. And um, you know, there's another quote um, from his uh, on the end of nation states. So, again, yeah. that makes it very clear. Right. He wants to end nation states. He wants to end sovereignty of nations. He wants a, a world, uh, a, a, a world order in in the, that kind of sense of see Roosevelt was for the United Nations for national sovereignty. That's the, like the major difference between these two outlooks that I think people maybe get confused sometimes. So Russell is calling for the end of this, that the United States is now going to be the new enforcer of like, what is the diktat, the global diktat. And he even says, 
will probably need to fight more world uh, wars, though there will probably be a future world war, however terrible, would probably end in American victory without the, 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 the entire destruction of civilization, right, in the Western Hemisphere. So about a, a little over a year after World War II, Russell is already calling for another world war. Guy's and, nuts. Yeah. And he's, he's not alone in this. This was like actually a common um, idea, like James Burnham, who wrote the managerial revolution. He's considered the kind of godfather of what formed the neoconservative movement. He was also saying that, you know, there would be about 12 to 16 more wars after World War II. Um, but he, he was of the idea, too, that Germany was going to win. He he was a part of Trotskyist groupings. It's it's a lot to go over. I, I have an, an article on that as well for people who want to know more about that. But the point just being that they knew that you would need to have more wars after World War II, but that World War II was going to uh, align things um, in a way that was going to start servicing this kind of new outlook, which was not going to be this outlook that we were just discussing, that all these um, nations are protecting their sovereignty and using this um, American system approach to economics to make their countries stronger. Um, instead, it will be uh, a form a form of a new empire, but it's going to have like a, a whole, it's going to have a makeover, right? It's going to have a PR makeover. So people are not even going to really necessarily think of it as an empire, but it's like, you know, your, your new global cop or your you know, the, the, the father figure of the world or, or whatnot, right? The, the moralizer, which is what the United States has clearly it's, become at this point. Yeah, this, is where, this is where we transition into the indispensable nation. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, yeah, by, by November, November 1948, Russell, he knows that the Soviets are going to be getting the bomb at some point, right? And the estimates were that it was going to happen around 1953, uh, by the the CIA, that those were the estimates. The Soviets get it for, uh, in 1949, right? So a few months before that, Russell's actually calling for the United States to bomb the Soviet Union because this would allow, this would ensure, right, that the United States would be able to have this uncontested uh, supremacy. Of course, you know, them being the puppet of the British Empire, which I'm gonna I'm gonna explain why I I, I say that um, shortly. So America doesn't, thank God, bomb the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union does get the bomb in 1949. And uh, what ends up happening? This lost opportunity, you know, for colossal one-sided <laughs> destruction is lost. But what they end up doing is they start to use this um, as now a justification to create the United States military industrial complex. So this is when it starts, is from the JIC 502, implications of Soviet possession of atomic weapons, where they made all of these claims that if, oh, if the Soviets get this many bombs or this or that, they will attack the United States. Right. And we know now um, in retrospect that none of this information, none of this theorizing was based on actual observations or any competent analysis. It was all made up to justify the military industrial complex. Correct. And uh, so you had like the, from the NSC 68, which is very big, big player in this, which um, is uh, what 
allowed for the the buildup of the the military defense budget from 10 billion to 40 billion from uh, 1950 to 53, um, and it was it was not based on <clears throat> any any justification. And what it ended up doing was that by creating this like dangerous situation of being ready for war at, at any moment, it just it it, it created um, uh, an an over militarization. Um, it it really was not ultimately for peace or defense, right? It, it was encouraging instead a, a more and more dangerous situation. Um, but not only that, you had the NSC 75. Now, this is something that is not reported um, hardly anywhere. This report is uh, by the Executive Secretary and British Military Commitments, is talking about how the British Empire, if it were to collapse, right? So World War II was understood by many to be also anti-imperialistic, right? So a lot of these countries that were colonialized, they were thinking now finally, like Vietnam, who was which were, were colonized by the French, were thinking now that they had the right to independence. They fought the fascists. They fought the Japanese fascists in the war. The Chinese fought the, the fascists, right? That if you were to fight the fascists, it was because you were for democracy. You were for... Um, for that civilized world outlook. So you were going to be invited to now participate in that. And uh, so a lot of these countries were like, okay, colonialism is also done because there's a lot of uh, actual similarity between fascism and colonialism. So if the world is saying no to fascism, they have to say no to colonialism, right? And, um, and so these countries are now in the process of, of forming their republics and their independence, including Vietnam. But Britain's saying, we can't have that because the Soviets are actually a really big threat to the world. And if the so if Soviet communism spreads to these countries that are not actually powerful enough to resist this, then um, you know we risk uh, turning the world into a much danger dangerous place. So we actually need to keep our colonies. Britain, France, anybody who has colonies, you should you should keep your colonies because um, that way we will protect um, these areas of the world uh, from being you know infiltrated by Soviet communism. So the United States signed on to this NSC 75 where they were going to defend the British Empire assets, colonial assets um, as an official part of their foreign policy that it would be more cost effective to aid Britain in saving its empire. And that was something, you know, that happened after Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt made it very clear that was one of the reasons why a lot of these countries were like, okay, we're not going to be considered colonies anymore after World War II, was because Roosevelt was actually very explicit about that. And that the he the way he understood it was that you were going to have a lot of countries that were going to need help to become fully sovereign because their economic situation had been so crippled for a long time that it was true. These, these countries were not in a position to just start calling their shots uh, for themselves, right? For instance, Vietnam, they didn't really have a government or, you know, a police uh, or tax, any kind of taxation, or you know, they didn't have any kind of infrastructure for that, what you would call a nation. So a lot of um, 
these countries would need a, 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 a period to help them out with that. And Roosevelt recognized that. And he said that there should be temporary overseeing to help these countries with this. And he balanced it out where he said it would be Britain and the United States, but also Russia and China. Instead, what happened once Roosevelt died was that they made it more uh, uh, Britain, uh, the United States, France, and funny enough, eventually Germany and Japan. Like the so France, Germany, and Japan all kind of you know went on the other side during World War II. But these countries would be invited in ultimately to participate in overseeing what would be this democratic post-World War II world, and Russia and China, who fought and lost tens of millions of people in the war, were told that they were now the enemies to this free free world, you know, democratic world uh, concept. Think of that. Think of the insanity of that. Here you are, you, you, you've, eight out of ten German soldiers died fighting Russia, eight out of ten. They put Germany through a meat grinder. They, in, in, in the process, they, they lost tens of millions of lives. They won the war in the European theater. And now, at the end of this whole time, they're thinking, hey, guess what? Tag, you're, you're the enemy now. What? What do you mean we're the enemy? This is the insanity of these people. They're insane. It's all about politics. Yeah. No, it, it doesn't. It, it it has nothing to do with anything that they they tell the people in terms of these nicey nicey words and all of that. And the Cold War did a lot to, um, uh, you know, misinform the American people as to what is really going on in Russia and China to this day. Right? There's so much ignorance as to what it is like what is the culture today um and and how do people live and how do people think in russia and china like there's such a disconnect with this and it's so easy to make a whole entire people seem monstrous when you don't really know anything about them right it's so so much easier and they still use those tactics today we got to yeah. fight them over there before we fight before we or we have to fight them here we exactly they're savages I, I, they're they're uh, insurgents Yes. And anything that they say that sounds nice and they're inviting us for like dialogue and for peace treaties and all this, we can't believe them. And it's like, why? Why would we not believe them? When you actually look at it, Russia and China have never lied about those types of things. It's the United States right. that have broken those promises. So we should really take those kinds of, um, you know, uh, requests for dialogue and for collaboration and everything seriously, honestly. Um, I don't know. Hmm. Is there any, I, I don't know if we have time for that. No, I think that's pretty much it. Or what do you think? Do we mention the Bandung conference or no? No, we can mention it. We, we have uh, five more minutes. Five more minutes. Okay. So yeah, for people who want to know more, the, the Bandung conference is actually really interesting. It, um, it um, led into the non-aligned movement. Um, but a lot of these countries, again, who were uh, looking for uh, basically sovereignty after World War II, they recognized that the American system was still something alive within the United States, even though there was this process now where it was becoming, it was uh, getting taken over by British imperialistic foreign policy. And so there's a lot of really beautiful quotes coming from uh, some of the, the leaders of this, this conference. And, you know, Kwame Nkrumah from uh, Ghana, Sukarno from Indonesia, 
Sukarno actually opened it up and he he quotes uh he says um he he talks about Paul Revere right um that's how he opens up the Bandung conference right for all of these countries asking for their sovereignty they say that um uh, Paul Revere wrote at midnight through the New England countryside, warning of the approach of the British troops and of the opening of the American War of Independence, the first successful anti-colonialist war in history. And so they really got it, right? That the United States was actually, um, its founding principles were totally in line with what these countries wanted to model themselves off of, as we've already discussed. So the Bandung Conference was really an attempt to revive what was lost from namely the two world war uh slaughterhouse that kind of confused everybody as to like what you know how how do we possibly believe in any kind of human collaboration at this point after two world wars but the point was that those those world wars were not natural it was it's not like we naturally are just going to have warfare that's our our, our nature and we're going to have hegemony we're any country that gets too powerful is going to become an empire and this sort of thing that's not the case it's a specific uh philosophy ideology that is centered in empire that is really the threat here just like um how right now the United States does everything for its military industrial complex but if you look at how Russia and China are set up or how they spend their money it is not to primarily service a military industrial complex. They have to invest in this as a defense for their countries because the United States is like obsessed with this and it, this is what they think about, you know, day and night. But um, ultimately, these countries uh, don't want that kind of identity. And you see how they're focusing on partnerships, economic partnerships. They're, they're focusing on a future that is multipolar, that has a, um, a, a way to finally end this permanent warfare, this perpetual warfare, um, you know, fanaticism that is centered in empire, the whole Trotskyist idea, the neoconservative idea. It's an infection, but it's not, um, you know, something that represents human nature in general. There is also a good part of human nature. I, I would argue, I think very clearly, most people don't want that. So the question is, <clears throat> how did that happen? And the system of empire is still in the process of, of, uh, of us like fighting it. But I think that what, what Russia and China are doing is that they're going to be ultimately the ones to hopefully really finish it off in the sense of its global power. Because, you know, the city of London for 400 years to this day is still the number one financial core of the world. And until you can address these like very big issues, um, you're going to have that system continuing to, to do uh, what it does in terms of removing sovereignty from countries. But I think we're on a very good track and the Americans just need to remember what they did in, in starting this whole thing with the American system. Yeah. I think, um, if if we will be so lucky to shake off the shackles of these globalists and their subversive history and the, and the and the tentacles of the city of London, it is so vital that this knowledge, this history, is taught again in schools, and that's why it's like you know I'm so like happy to have you and Matthew and the Rising Tide Foundation and CanadianPatriot.org 
you guys and, and people that are that that are you know the multipolaristas, the multipolar people who understand this, are the torchbearers of this original ideal that started in 1776, and that is the true freedom. So it's it, it's so vital. I'm my my hope and prayer is that unless we rediscover our roots and this lost knowledge, pretty much, right? I mean, you got to go into the corners of the internet to find all this stuff. Um, this lost knowledge is something that is taught and understood at a very deep and profound way here in the United States. Otherwise, I don't know what I, I don't know what the outcome is going to be, Cynthia. It's going to be horrific because if we, if we if we can't get back to the identity of who we are, man, we're going to be in some serious trouble. I think I'm I'm probably more optimistic, but there there will be a lot more tragedy. Yes. But I think ultimately, ultimately. You know, we live in a world where there is natural law. So there's natural outcomes for when you violate, you know, within an economic system too, an unjust system. If you notice, empires tend to collapse. The only British empire was bankrupt after the two world wars, um, which was not something that they were thinking was going to happen, by the way. And it was only by... um, you know, completely taking over uh, the United States, which had built itself up into an economic powerhouse, that they were able to uh, extend their existence. But you see now that the United States is collapsing economically because it's not ultimately a viable system. Yeah, exactly correct. Cynthia Chung, thank you so much for joining us today. And folks, once again, you can find Cynthia over at the CanadianPatriot.org, CanadianPatriot.org risingtidefoundation.net and join her substack subscribe 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 and here's the thing guys when you go over to like the rising tide foundation you you show your support for them uh you sign up for their email alerts there's some amazing workshops that cynthia and matthew run that they do it weekly uh, maybe even a few times a week it's just incredible and also make sure you get matthew's book uh, it's, I mean, we've been pumping it on this site, uh, you know, on this platform several, several times. So vital for you guys to understand all of this. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. We can't thank you enough, and we look forward to having you back again. Likewise. Folks, you're listening to roguenews.com. He, I, CJ's working the airwaves. I'm in the, you know, talking in the background with my <laughs> camera off as usual. <laughs> anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening in. We'll be back tomorrow, same uh, same time, same schedule tomorrow, uh, 11 a.m. Thank you all for listening in. CJ, take it away.